Frank, I literally just released my app update for my cadence out into the world, which includes a SQLite database. And then you updated the library. So now I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And it's out there in the world. I can't take it back. Once it's out, I, I don't know, Frank. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Um, yeah. So I did release a new version of SQLite hyphen net. It's actually called Dashnet uh, version 1.8, and I'm excited. I'm excited. I don't update it that often, mostly because I don't want to break people, and the library works, and there's no reason to break something that works. Mm -hmm. But in this case, uh, there's a really good active community around it, and they insist on making it better. I don't know if I always agree, but they're like, let's make it better. Um, so there are some uh, fun features in 1.8. I think you're fine, James, because like the core engine or anything Okay, I take that back. A core part did change a little bit, <laughs> but not that much. Uh, I, you're fine. You're fine. One one point seven or yeah, version one point seven is probably what you have. It has a million users. It's stable. It's good. One point eight is out, and it has faster column access. Um, the one slow part of SQLite Net was always that I used reflection to. Uh, insert data into objects and pull data from objects. And it turns out that's kind of slow. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, uh, I believe that that is, um, well, it depends on where you're doing it too, when you do reflection, right? Because uh, every runtime is a little bit different. If you have a supercomputer that has all sorts of things that's living in the cloud, <laughs> reflection is going to be pretty quick, right? You think of entity framework, the, I don't know if the new versions use a lot of reflection. I think they do though, but uh, I'd have to ask Jeremy and, and the team, but I think that was one thing is entity framework uses a lot of reflection and that's not too bad when you're running it on the server, right? Because EF and EF core are just like super duper fast and it can have a lot of good things. But when you try to run it on a mobile device and trying to do all sorts of craziness that can slow it down in some scenarios when you're doing big things. Yeah. And I usually fall back on my whole, um, you shouldn't be querying a million rows on a mobile device. And this is, you know, it's a database layer developed for mobile. But at the same time, I keep putting it on web servers and everyone puts it on everything. So we're, we're definitely putting on more than mobile stuff. And this gets into reflection is slow. It's definitely has a lot of overhead. For example, if I just want to write a value into the field of an object, not a property, nothing complicated, just, you know, put some data in a field. I would, I, I, I'll shoot, I, I'm going to make up numbers, but it's a thousand times slower <laughs> than reality. There's, there's just so much overhead compared to like that actual simple instruction. So the trick to do these days is to use link expressions, uh, .NET, what, 4, C or C sharp 4, I don't know, whatever. They've been around forever. And it turns out that although you can't call reflection emit on iOS, and that's why SQLite-Net never did, you can, in fact, create link expressions. They had to support expressions to make link work. And you can actually uh, call a method on it called uh, .compile, and that will <laughs> make it fast. <laughs> it'll actually it'll return a method object to you, and you can just call that method object. What are they called? Like uh, multicast delegates. It'll give you one of those and it's super fast. And the irony is even on um, uh, operating systems where there is no JIT, 
it's still faster. It's still better to do it that way. So SQLite 1.8 has much faster column access thanks to that feature. You probably don't need it, <laughs> but it's there now. You mean my tiny little database that has like four columns on it? Right. Yeah. It's You're not going to notice this. <laughs> this is if you have 100 columns and you're turning, you know, 100,000 rows, then you start to notice it. But until then, it's fine. Uh, so that's a performance thing, but it also now supports value tuple. Mm-hmm. You know, you love mm-hmm. your value tuple. I All do. the C sharp people, everyone's been using them. I see them everywhere in C sharp code now. Do you use them? No, because I don't know when to use them. I guess. <laughs> I know. It's usually like I start using them, and then I get tired of typing them, and then I'm like, I'm just going to create a, a proper type for it. But uh, people love their value tuples, and they want to be able to store them in a database for some reason. <laughs> so I support that. <laughs> okay. So so this is kind of branching out because that's kind of a complex type compared to just like strings and integers and date times, which date time is complex, but, you know. Yeah, it's very complicated, in fact. Um, and this kind of goes back into our old discussions of how do you store an array of doubles or locations or whatever you were st- uh, RPMs or something like that. Um, sometimes like you, you don't break things out into rows and columns. Sometimes people want to put complex data right into the database. And for the most part, I've resisted that, but I've kind of come around to the side of, um, I don't know, database, you should be able to put anything into a database. Maybe it's not the best design or whatever, but we, you know, life is short. We got we got to get this stuff done. I just want to be able to put things in the database. So I think even for SQLite-NET uh, 1.9, I, I want to have better JSON support. So mm. you could just throw a whole object into a column and just let the database deal with it. Yeah, that's uh, that's monkey cash, man. That is monkey cash. <laughs> and, and talking about yeah. that, since we're on lightning topics, um, you know, you can continue your SQLite shenanigans over here. But we actually been getting a few questions. I'm going to go out of order, so it's going to be tricky. But talking mm-hmm. about monkey cash, talking about SQLite, I keep getting questions that you know people have existing, you know, like you know Xamarin applications, Xamarin Forms app, or even UWP or WPF apps, and they're like. I want to migrate to Don Maui. Can I do that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I got that for SQLite. I have to respond to it. It's in the issues. <laughs> I need to put like a thing. Uh, there seems to be a little bit of confusion out there about what .NET standard means, especially in the context of Maui and .NET 6, because .NET 6 is kind of changing things a bit. It's a unified uh, thing. <laughs> is that a word thing thing yes <laughs> but um the good news is .NET 6 implements .NET standard so that means every .NET standard library out there just kind of works in .NET 6 and MAUI that's not true if you're doing like user interface things if you're like a WinForms library you'll want to port that to MAUI but basically everything else is just gonna come along for free um you know, plus or minus bugs in the runtime, things like that. Uh, but contractually, interface-wise, it all should just hashtag just work, right? Yeah, I mean, if you have just a down at standard library like SQLite-Net or MVVM helpers or things like that, there's they should just be pulled in and sucked in automatically because that's just cross-platform .NET code, right? The question mm-hmm. will end up being with something like Monkey Cache, which has multi-targeting right like i target android 
and iOS and tvOS to store files in the correct location. Um, right. I, I probably, what I probably should have done, by the way, is I probably should have just let them pass in. If I was smart, if I was smart, Frank, which I'm not, mm-hmm. I would have let them pass in a directory and then I wouldn't have, I was trying to be too clever, right? But in this case, the question will end up becoming is, can I pull in something that's targeting mono Android 9 or Xamarin iOS 1.0? Will that get sucked mm-hmm. into a Net6 iOS project? Right. So this is actually kind of complicated. Um, I was following all these rules. And in the end, this is mostly Nougat's rules. So I will say, yes, they are changing how you should do things for .NET 6. So the way you do your cross-platform now, you're going to want to migrate to the .NET 6 way, which should be pretty easy. It's just going to be another little build step or something in your CI system because you can keep on building the net standard ones. So to be clear, if you have just a pure net standard library, you're fine. It's all just going to work. If you have cross-platform shenanigans like James over here, then you're going to have to probably create a few new projects, .NET 6 projects that are just pulling in that same code as your other ones. Mm. You're going to, I think you're going to want to support old and new for a little while you know .NET 6 is going to come out in whatever some amount of time but it's going to take time to adopt it so as library authors i think we're going to stick with both for a little bit yeah i think that the the thing that i may end up doing to answer i think sam wrote in sam wrote in for this one this is sam nope this is dorab um asked uh via email you can go to mergeconflict.fm and ask uh, here uh i think what i'm gonna do is what I just said, which is I only do bait and switch for getting like a file directory. So I'll just document mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? I'll just document it and yeah. you go and do it or you just use Xamarin Essentials because that's all you need to re- really use anyways or .NET MAUI Essentials and then pass in where you want to store the file and then boom, problem solved, right? That's what I'm yeah. thinking. Then done. Right. And I, I did forget to mention that um, .NET 6 knows of the old target frameworks. So oh. if it sees Xamarin iOS, it's, and it'll try to target it that to a .NET 6 hyphen iOS. Or how's that go? Like .NET 6 hyphen iOS. I think that's how the new system goes. Oh, so um, it's, it does. It does. The problem is you're relying on a lot of fancy NuGet rules that have a lot of like, if this, then this, then this, then this, then this. Like you can go read the technical documents of how all that stuff gets resolved. And so, uh, yes, to make migrations work smoothly, .NET 6 should be able to just consume those. Um, bait and switch is always a bigger question mark because that's a real trick. But uh, it should be able to just consume those. The problem is you're relying on fancy translation rules, so you are going to want to do some Net6 versions eventually. I like it. I like it. So either remove the junk or update the stuff. That makes sense. And yeah, it, it shouldn't really take a lot of hard effort there. So the answer is, will I support it? Yeah, because I, I will definitely do it. Um, it's always funny, too, because I, I just go to Nougat and then I click on the Fugit button and I'm like, oh, what 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 do I do over here? Oh, that's what <laughs> I do. You know what I mean? Like, I'm always doing that all the time. I was on a call with someone at work and I was like, oh, let me just op- open it in Fugit. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, let me show you this magic. Um, anyways, <laughs> that- next topic, Frank Krug, you on a cross country road trip. And I believe you brought one computer. Is that correct? I did, James, and I brought the most doubtful one that I could think of. 
this is part 1000 of the M1 recap, everyone. We're doing it in a lightning round. <laughs> uh, I think in our last recap, I think you were very upset with your M1. You were like, I'm done. I can't figure anything out. Is that true? Uh, uh, okay, no. Um, I, I was getting a little fed up with some development stuff. Now, actually mm-hmm. using it day to day, I wasn't having a lot of issues as far as browsing the web, watching videos, doing productivity stuff. I, I went back in recently and I was, I was doing my cadence work and I was doing Android stuff and that seemed to work well. I was just having some weird iOS simulator stuff, but I do believe that I updated that stuff to the latest bits and pieces. And I think it was working again. So I kind of like switched back over to like, I think everything's a little bit better now, Uh, but I was a little bit frustrated. That is for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on a, I'm on a road trip and that's why my mic sounded, might sound a little different this week. And I wanted to bring my newest laptop because it's really light and powerful, but I had all the doubts because I knew it was a good productivity machine, as you put it. Like I'd been surfing the web on it. It's a good machine. (laughs) It can Mm -hmm. do that very well. The question was um, Mono and Xamarin and .NET, you know, how, how are those all doing? Visual Studio for Mac. Uh, so what I did was I updated everything and then I realized, James, oh gosh, it's still the beta summer. I still have a beta version of Mac OS on here. So <laughs> even if like, you know, Microsoft released beautiful, perfect products, like this is a beta version of the OS. You never know what's going to go on. Yeah. So I updated everything like you and my two things were, can I get iCircuit and iCircuit 3D to compile and run for both Mac, iOS simulator and iOS hardware. So I had to do all three of those tests for those two apps uh, just to make sure, prove to myself that I could actually use this machine for development. And I did that. It was all working pretty good. I won't say it's super fast, but it can build iCircuit in four and a half minutes under a release build. That might sound shocking to you, but that's a release build where I'm using LLVM, all the optimizers. It's an insane thing. That build used to take seven minutes on my old iMac. So, you know... Yeah, so the the M1's not doing too bad here. I did get, I tried to run the iOS simulator and got the most horrific crashing error you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) But uh, from Googling around, I found out it was more of a OS bug. And I just had to update the beta OS, which I'm stupidly running on this machine oh, <laughs> and that's totally i mean it just would crash and into a yeah and a flame of glory that's what i got that was my bug and i bet it's because i was on the betas that's right you did the betas too yeah, yeah. And it was a hard one to Google because I guess it was only one of the betas. It was like beta one and they're up to like beta four or five right now. So it was only this one short period where those iOS simulators weren't working. Uh, so I got the simulators working. Um, I haven't pushed .NET 6 yet on here, but I'm, I'm assuming .NET 6 will work. Uh, and I even did releases, not proper releases, but test flight releases of my apps from this machine today. So I want to say on record, the M1 is a good development machine. <laughs> Things have finally stabilized a little bit. I've, obviously, you still run into errors, but uh, they're all work throughable. And I've been, I'm happy. I'm happy. Nice I, new computer to bring. I have installed Donut 6 on my, and I was running Donut Maui, the latest previews, all the Donut 6 previews, preview seven. I did a whole video on preview seven. I'll throw it in the show notes. And, and I talked through installing it and doing stuff. That, it seems to work fairly well. I made the mistake though, Frank, <laughs> of 
going to the download section. And then I went to all downloads and I said .NET 6. And here's where I got confused because you go to Mac OS and, and I want to install the SDK and there's installers and there's an X64 and an ARM64 installer. Oh, okay. Wow. So they got an ARM64 of Net6, huh? Yeah. I didn't I know that was fully supported yet. But I don't know if, I don't know if that's Is like that... an M1 though, because it didn't work well, for me. Okay. Was that, I'm sorry, was that under the Mac section or what, could that be like a Raspberry Pi build or something? That's under the Mac section. Well, you'll have to talk to who? Rich, Rich. Lander? Yeah. <laughs> Rich. I gotta, I gotta we always ask. just blame Rich. <laughs> well, because there's no other ARM64 Mac OS. I things. don't know of one. <laughs> but <laughs> it had PowerPC. It doesn't sound like a PowerPC. <laughs> I think the thing is that I, I bet, I guess the question will be, I don't know. I got to ask, like, does everything, is everything able to run under ARM64? Like, does the .NET MAUI stuff need X64 or something? Well, I don't know, right? That's always the trick. So it, it gets back to our previous conversation about the .NET, right? It's if you have pure IL code, the runtime takes care of all that for you. The IL is a machine abstraction. It's going to work perfectly up until you try to load a native library and then it comes crashing down. Um, I don't, Microsoft has technology where I think the ARM can talk to Intel and then the Intel back to the ARM, but I don't think Apple can make that bridge. Hmm. You're either 100% Intel or 100% ARM, as far as I remember. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, well, that's all just a long way of saying, I don't know why that's not working. Like, did you get an error? Did it refuse to install? No, it installed just fine. But when I was running, when I tried to run Maui check, it wouldn't run like the global tools wouldn't run or something like that. So I don't know. Hmm. I gotta ask Rich. I'll ask Rich. I'll report back. Yeah. I, I want to know if hello world works. You know, once you go from there, then I just blame the other apps and tools. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing is that it was really easy to uninstall and just reinstall the X64 version. It was good to go. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Works. Um, so back to this little M1, I think it's all a very reasonable computer to get because um, at every price point, you're basically getting the same processor. I did get the eight core versus, versus the seven core, hmm. but um, the build does not seem to be using every single core. So I would say that's not really an issue to even think about. So everyone out there, go get some M1s. Nice. Yeah, I still like it. I still recommend it. I, it, you know, we're getting closer. Things things are happening. It, it'll just get better. And and I assume that eventually when I just install Visual Studio 2022 or whatever, like on the Mac, that it'll just install the correct versions of .NET 6 and I'll have to be just fine. But these beta summers and falls are being, you know, just <laughs> they're being phased. They're released. tough on the heart, James. They're tough. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I did something interesting, <laughs> just like we're phase releasing in betas in and out of our lives. I was releasing my cadence, Frank, and I did this thing where I put it into, um, you know, into test flight and I put it into my Google play private testing. And I have a, a few people that did it, but I used the let anyone test it link in test flight, which is kind of cool. And someone did sign up. That was mm -hmm. kind of nice. What happened was, is anytime someone sent me feedback, I'd be like, respond to the answer. I'm like, Oh, and like, in case you want to try some new features, like check out the test flight link. Right. Um, so I did something on, on iOS, uh, I'm on Android, which was that I just put it into public beta. I was like, I'm going to just, you can, you know, anyone can sign up for public beta and you do a, a rollout and it just kind of works. Obviously iOS doesn't have that. Cause they have test flight. Like 
people can't sign up, it would be cool as if people are in, if people were in the app store, Apple, are you listening? If people are in the app store, <laughs> just like they're on the Google play store and they could say, register for the beta, right? And then you could push Tesla flights build into a public beta. That's what we want. Apple just let us do that. Just like Google does, but they don't let us do this. So I've been, I was sitting for a week and a half, just, it was approved. The app was approved. I submitted it for review, right? Cause I had it tested. I've been testing this nonstop and they approved it. So just sitting there, you know, waiting developer release. And I'm just like, I don't know. I, I got to think about this for a week and a half. So I thought about it for a week and a half <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess it was funny because it was literally two days before you released 1.8 of SQL. <laughs> so I should have waited. Apparently that's what I'm hearing, um, is, um, as I was like, okay, I'm going to release this thing. And then I scroll to the bottom and I saw this thing called a phased release. And, um, this allows you to roll out gradually release over seven days. And if you have a big app, this would make a lot of sense because it, the numbers are interesting. So it goes day one, 1% of users. So that's like 10 users are going to get this app update. <laughs> um, day two, 2%, day three, 5%, day four, 10%, day five, 20%, day six, 50%, day seven, everybody gets it. So that allows you to pause it too. So if I wanted to, I could just pause right now, upgrade to 1.8 and go to town, but I'm not going to do it, Frank, because you told me it's fine. But <laughs> I am using it for the first time, but here's the thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know how many people yeah. have installed it. Like, I don't know how many, if did anyone install it? Did anyone get it? Like, how do I get feedback? Like, it's cool, but like, there's not like a feedback loop. Have you used this thing before? Am I crazy? Am I missing something? Uh, you are definitely not crazy because you had a really smooth segue that just went right over my head. I, I just want yeah. to acknowledge that. Okay. Yeah. Thank so, you. Thank you. On record. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know about this thing. I've been a little too nervous to use it. And by nervous, I mean, I, I thought about the exact problem you just described. Uh, on the whole, I love the idea though, because I circuits my normal example. I, when I was first developing that thing, I would create some bad releases you know mm -hmm. i was learning and um i would ship it out and i was all excited new version out there people are gonna love it i'm waiting for all the fan mail to come in and then 300 reports come in app crashes app crashes yeah. app crashes and you're like mm. ah <laughs> so phase release makes a lot of sense when you have a lot of users and i like that they pick that nice little power of two curve it's roughly powers of two it's great um, but you still face that reporting problem. In my case, I've, um, I'm still using classic Microsoft uh, Analytics something or another. It's great. App Center. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I can see specifically, um, well, let's go with crashes. Because right now, iCircuit3D has a bunch of crashes in it. And I have an update that I think is going to fix all of them, not all of them, <laughs> but a lot of the, the big ones, the common ones. And so I'll, I can't decide whether I would do a phase release for that or just put it all out there. One philosophy is if this fixes a lot of bugs, then I should just put it out there. A second philosophy is you never know what bugs you're introducing. So do the phase release and then watch App Center, whatever analytics you have, and see if the crashes are actually down or if the crashes are higher. That would be the scientific correct way to do mm -hmm. it. Um, 
What do you think you're going to do? Or, you don't have analytics, I guess. I Yeah, that's one thing about this application is it has absolutely zero access to the internet and zero permissions. And um, <laughs> I actually had someone left a review that appreciated that. So Okay, um, okay. So I, I did the phase rollout. It's, it, it's actually different on Android. I'm going to do it right now. And you have to pick a percentage. You have to say roll oh. out percentage. I'm going to do 5%. Gutsy. But it's weird, but then I don't know. I don't know how to adjust it. It says this release will be available for five users, five percent of users. Roll out. And then do you have to manually up it? I know what I'm about to find out right now. All right. Manage rollout. You, you do manage rollout, update rollout, and then you manually increase it. That's terrible. They should just have it like I like the Apple <laughs> app. That's bad. But yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that that is kind of nice that you're in control of when you want to update it. So if you're like, I only want 5% of people for the next, you know, week, you could do that. Where Apple, yeah. you don't get to do that. It's this is happening. That feels like Google's absolute love of A-B tests, though. Yeah, I, I'm getting a little bit tired of being A-B tested. It happens a lot in the YouTube app. I notice mm. they'll just change very slight things about the UI for a week and then it'll go back to normal. And then it might change again in a week. And you're like, stop A-B testing me. Just design the stupid thing and make it good. <laughs> that's true. Um, well, I'm, I'm rolling no, it out. I'm excited. Yeah. that That's cool. Um, I'm glad you did it. Maybe I'll have the confidence. I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We're, we're going to be the phase club. That's Fa- it. Phase it in. I think that what you can do here is at least Google will give me a crash rate. So right now my crash rate mm-hmm. is zero. It's pretty I, good. I should that. That's wonderful. All software should be at zero. I'm not at zero. That's true, though. I, even Apple gives you crash rates. Uh, you would have to break it down by the version. So yeah, you don't even need analytics as long as the user... Uh, yeah, it's been... I, I always wonder what the proportion of users are that agree to upload crash reports to developers are. Mm-hmm. I always say yes, but I, I'm curious uh, what other people do. What do you yeah. think that percentage is? I'm like, it depends on the app. I'm like kind of 50, 50. I will say on iOS, zero crashes. That's pretty good. Um, yeah. but I, w- I would like to know, yeah, what that is and can I do it and can I break it down and et cetera, et cetera. That would be nifty. Wow. I have zero crashes on all of mine, man. I'm awesome. <laughs> or the reporting's broken or because nobody opts in. And that's the thing too, is they have to opt in you know, they, I was, I was wrong because they actually have to opt in for everything. It's like when you turn on your iPhone for the yeah. first time you upgrade, it's like, yeah. do you want to, do you want to give developers all your extra data? And you're like, probably not. Yeah. And I can't remember if they asked that. I don't even think they asked that during upgrades. They asked that first time installations as I far believe, as I remember. I believe so. Yeah. Unless and if changed so something. someone opted out, they've probably been opted out for years, you know, yeah. that setting is probably carried through for a while. It's only going to matter. I don't know. It's only going to matter if you have an app that has, you know, a lot of users, like a lot, yeah. like a million users, then there's going to be people, a sampling size in there that has that. But of course now you don't know how many people, you don't know the percentage of people that have it turned on. Now that's what I would want to know, right? It's like, come on, Apple, like, let me know how many people have opted in. You know how many people have opted in. <laughs> Tell me how many people. All right, last. No, no, we have two more questions. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Really? Um, question from Sam. Okay. Uh, I assume. Hi, Sam. Yeah, hi, Sam. I assume Sam was listening to our mo- one of our most recent episodes about I- identity and auth- authentication. Um, and this is, this is a fascinating one, which actually I can, I can answer it as, as if from the Auth0 
or, or the the Okta, you know, the discussion about device authentication. But this is a different question that Sam's asking. So, so Sam asks, short question: Is there a way to identify a user if they have installed the app, logged in with email and password, and then uninstalled the app and then reinstall the application? Um, they say this. They're like they said that. This there has to be a way to do this because some games do it, and I've seen some other apps like like Robinhood does this, for example. Um, it would be a nice user experience if they install and 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 go in and out, and also because now also by the way, iOS will start to uninstall applications if you don't use them. You can you can turn that feature on, which I do, and sometimes my apps get uninstalled. From the perspective of the conversation that we had um, uh, earlier with with Okta. I think of the device, the, the idea of device, like the device itself is the identity. Well, if your application is part of that ecosystem, then the device is authenticated. So your app would be authenticated and there's an API to do it that way. But I think they're talking about like, maybe they have their own email and password system, I think. Yeah, I'm actually a, a little bit confused because you can provide a pretty good user experience if you have a login system, because you can basically store everything on the server, anything of relevance. You can even store the UI state on the server, you know, what page are they looking at? And you could have amazing fidelity. They could uninstall and reinstall the app a thousand times and it would be fine. So I'm curious why they would actually care to detect whether it had been previously installed. Well, they don't want them to re-enter their username and password. Oh, okay. Now we're getting fancy, right? Yeah. <laughs> this was definitely easier back in the day when we had universal device IDs, <laughs> but we don't have those anymore. So yeah, um, like you said, it, it's going back to that Okta conversation. I don't personally have a great way because what you're talking about is fingerprinting and Apple really doesn't love it when you fingerprint. Mostly they don't love ad people being nefarious ad people, but in general, that's meant awesome features like this have gone by the wayside. Uh, I mean, you can do all sorts of ugly hacks. You can take the Ethernet address of the thing and use that as a reference. You know, I don't want to suggest anything more, though, because I'm just going to sound like an idiot and give a lot of bad advice. Well, could you um, what I was thinking of is could you log in right and then store your auth token? into the keychain, right? Yeah. And then that keychain gets backed up. And when you uninstall yeah. an app, your keychain doesn't get deleted. It, it's still around. That information is still there. I'm like 99% sure. Um, oh, yeah. Especially well, if they it's, it's It's whether they're using iCloud keychain or if you back up the phone, your keychain gets backed up as long as you do an encrypted backup. You have to do an encrypted backup. That's encrypted important. backup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the foundation of our crazy GUID authentication system for your app was now the only thing we have to store is this very simple piece of information, put that in the keychain, and it gets propagated everywhere. Yeah, and that works. Um, I've done it, at least on iOS, it's really, really good. On Android, it's a little bit iffy because of how shared preferences work across the different versions. But I use secure storage, and yeah, th- that seems to work just fine because you the user will install it, then you uninstall it. In fact, it was a little bit annoying for me because I was trying to test different users and I don't have a log out mechanism of, of the app. So I remember <laughs> that was my main problem. So I had to create a new import uh, mechanism to like log them out and log them back in with a new and generate new tokens. But I think you could do that. Now, of course, you you want to think about, of course, Keychain is 
secure. Um, but you would want to think about like, how long is that token good for, for example, right? Like, is it, is your token good forever? Is it good for 24 hours? Is it good for, you know, it depends on how good that token is. You would not want to store their email and password that they entered oh, into. Keychain. I disagree. Are you I would. disagree? Keychain was specifically designed to store usernames and passwords. There are fields called username and password. That's and true. It's designed that's to like, store that information. That's a good point. I know it's not fashionable these days because we're all beyond passwords, but I don't know. I think only like Silicon Valley is beyond passwords. I think most are very comfortable with them and accept them. And I would just dump those straight in there. Of course, you could just put the token in there. You're, you're right, but I would just put the username and password in. Unless they change their password. Or you have two-factor well, well, that's fine too. But then you need a password recovery system anyway. That's just a, power, a part of auth- accounts and authentication. Yeah. This is all just a convenience feature. And so all we're really coming down to is um, what is permanent storage and what should you put in there? There really isn't much permanent storage on an iPhone uh, outside of your app. Hmm. So uh, other alternatives are app groups because you can technically create a container there, but that container would also disappear if another app uh, that wasn't using it, I think they kind of get garbage collected and erased. Alternatives are, um, there is iCloud storage. So you can just lop it up onto iCloud. It's super Mm. easy. I would not put usernames and passwords up on iCloud, (laughs) but you can put pretty much anything else up there. Keychain though. Keychain. Passwords are allowed there. Well, the other thing too is, like obviously the keychain from Apple and also have the authenticator application too. That's why that's what I use for all my Microsoft stuff. Like it, it will fill in my username and password for me. So actually having me log in is yeah. like not that big of an issue if you're on an iPhone or even on Android, it does it automatically where if you specify the fields, you know, manually, even if you open a browser, it'll still save your data for that URL. So logging back in isn't, that bad i mean a a better user experience yes is if you try to seamlessly do it um but yeah yeah i i I think password filler inners have gotten really good yeah and i think the way it works on ios is you it's somewhere in your info p list you tell it what website this app Mm. is a reflection of and it'll prompt for those passwords in that uh, in those fields. I, there's a whole WWDC session on it, but there is a way to associate your app with a website so that Safari passwords get shared between oh. the two. The other nice thing is you can get cookies to be shared. Because oh. then, yeah. So there, Apple's been working a little bit on web integration of apps. I unfortunately, it's the name of all this technology is eluding me. But over the somewhere in the past four years of WWDC, they've discussed this. Yeah, go ahead and Google that, and then for WWDC, <laughs> let, for let WWDC, for WWDC specifically. Um, all right, the last one I'm going to talk about. I, I wrote it down in here, and you probably think it's something else, but it's not. Um, I put we Frank and I we use Zencaster, and we just have a it's just me listing topics, and and we need one more. <laughs> Many of these were from you, the community. Um, and we do this every 10 episodes. If you're brand new to the podcast, we're welcome. Uh, Hello. I put down something called automation. And what do you think I meant when I meant automation? I know exactly what you mean. You want to talk about the classic Mac app automator. 
the little robot icon and Apple script or Apple, yeah, Apple script and how fifth generation programming languages should be more like spoken English and written English than like a programming language. I, I am here for this conversation, James. Close. Almost, kind of, but no. Um, I am talking about that type of automation now. Now, here's what Automator does because I've heard, um, um, uh, what's his name, Daring Fireball, um, uh-huh. talk about uh, Automator and scripts and stuff like that. Now, he, I'm under this. Here's my mentality: if you ever have to do something twice, you should try to automate it. Like you should try to figure out a mm-hmm. way of automating that thing to re- to to remove because you have to do it then a third time you're just wasting time. You should figure out a way of attempting to automate that. Now there is a tricky thing, which is sometimes it may take longer to try to automate that thing than just doing it manually. But at some points in time, it's going to be worth automating that puppy. And people have used different like browser extensions, little scripts that you can run. Um, you're talking about the automator, which allows you to run scripts. There's keyboard automation where you can automate keyboards. The thing that I'm talking about, which I think is the most amazing thing in the world that I've deeply dived into as a manager at Microsoft (laughs) is two different pieces of technology that are basically the same, but a little bit different, which is logic apps, part of Azure, and then power automate slash flow, which is power of M365, Power Apps, et cetera, et cetera. Now, these two Mm. pieces of technologies are closer to Automator, but instead of being written language, they are blocked-based. So it is sort of like if this, then that, but if you can do advanced logic and you can do some conditions and loops and other advanced properties and you have inputs and outputs and multiple outputs, now, the, here's the difference between the two of these things from, from a high-level perspective. Power or power Automate slash Flow, which is its original name. I still call it Flow because it's flow.microsoft.com. <laughs> that is if you are really integrating into your M365 deeply because it, it authenticates really nicely. So, for example, if you're using Excel or using SharePoint or using Forms or use anything like that. Whereas if you're inside of... Um, If you're inside of Azure and you're using other Azure services like Azure Functions and you want to authenticate with all your Azure stuff, Power Automate, or sorry, Logic Apps are really good for that. (laughs) Okay, those are the two things. They both have a lot of the similarities though, but they're all great. Now, here's the thing. I, at any given time, Frank, maybe we were talking about this podcast, so I, I pause. At any given time, Frank, I have probably 30 to 50 Power Automations running every single day. <laughs> like every single day I have this running. Because here's what I do. I have all sorts of scripts all over the place, right? For example, for the .NET Live TV live streams that we do, I want to be able to gather information. Like, you know, how many viewers did we have? Like how many um, how many comments were there? How many likes were there? You know, um, I want to know for blogs, how many views did it get? Um, I want to take that information and I want to synchronize it with our Azure DevOps or our Power BI dashboard, right? And I could do this all manually by hand, right? Imagine if I had a a, a DevOps, an Azure DevOps ticket, like a, like a, if you're using Jira, like a ticket, like a, a thing on a Kanban board, and it was for a blog post. I wrote this blog post, and there's a field called views. Every single day, I could open that, open up 
you know, our analytics and I could enter that. Or I could have, I could have a flow in Power Automate that says, hey, every day at midnight, go grab every single, run this query in Azure DevOps. Okay, go run that, which is going to query all of the blogs, you know, entry tickets that I have that I've completed. And then go find the URL and go run a, a query with our analytics, get the views back and the comments back, and then pipe it into the Azure DevOps. And then from that, a dashboard is generated. Or Frank, what if every night I just queried all of YouTube, all the different IDs, all the different <laughs> playlists, and it updated all the different information that's backing the database for the Power BI dashboard that's updating this. And then what if at the same time, it generated an email report once a week from that data? That is what I do at work. That is my job, Frank. Automator. Automate. It's not a robot. It's James. <laughs> I automate. I, 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 but I'm coding at the same time because it's a lot of conditionals. Yeah. It's a lot of different things. And I'm sure. And in between that, I'm calling tons of Azure functions to do a bunch of stuff, right? Like I'm not having the power automate call, you know, a, a dev two API or a, uh, you know, YouTube API. Like I have a C sharp function that's, that I can call that I, I have in Azure and, and, you know, I, I have it use that Azure function call it, return data, I parse JSON, and then I iterate over it. And it just enables me to basically log into all of these different services and query all these different spreadsheets and, and um, table storage things and all this different stuff. I have one for table storage. Oh my goodness. Our <laughs> blog is all like with GitHub and all this other stuff. And like um, Emo and I have it where like he triggers my logic app and then it like stores tokens into table storage and it updates all <laughs> sorts of different things. It's a beautiful world, Frank. I just, I, I don't get to code very often. I, I automate all the time, but I'm this automation. It's like all yeah. these tedious things that I don't want to do ever. And I'm like, I can automate oh. and I never have to do it again. Okay. I don't even like that perspective. I don't oh, like so the good. efficiency perspective and I don't like the, tedium one for me what it is is in three months i've forgotten how to do it yeah so mm -hmm. sure i'm an expert at it for a week or two and i can do it really fast and maybe it is tedious but i'm still fast at it and mm -hmm. i'm debating whether i should automate it but i'm like i'm pretty fast at it yeah fast forward three months and i can't remember how to even do it <laughs> so who cares about fast or efficient you know yeah so the, the so this is definitely a part where I feel like I have failed as an elite hacksaw computer user because I imagined as a kid that I would have all sorts of powerful machines running thousands of background tasks, doing all my bidding, you know, it'd be querying the internet and cross-correlating information, rendering it to a 3D globe rendered on a hollow projector, you know, all that should be happening. But instead, I have my little meat fingers poorly typing in Google searches and looking up notes files for usernames and passwords and all that stuff. So that's my way of saying uh, you are elite hacksaw because you have automation. <laughs> it really is a next level step. Uh, back in the day, that, that, that you would have just done cron jobs. You yeah. would have written a thousand scripts and had a thousand cron jobs running. Now we're fancier. We have clouds with multiple access ports. My favorite one, what I've actually gotten pretty addicted to, is the GitHub Actions. Uh. Because... 
that has been my gateway drug into automation because you can they they have support for secrets so you can deal with all your authentication kind of stuff you can code your steps in whatever language you want because you're just calling out to a shell file so you know whatever language you want install the runtime or whatever on that machine it it doesn't just have to be events. I'm sure your logic apps and stuff, the real beauty of all this is triggers and events. Anyone can make software work, uh, but it's triggers and events and coordinating all that that's hard. But uh, GitHub Actions has decent support for that, especially if you do multiple different jobs with different names and dependencies, mm-hmm. all that kind of clever stuff. You can get all that to work. And uh, it has cron jobs, so you can have it run every morning or something like that. So I totally get you. Um, I, I'm still searching for the perfect UI for all this. When you were describing logic apps, I, I haven't seen it, but I, I was honestly thinking of Yahoo Pipes. Do you remember Yahoo Pipes? <laughs> no, I need to Google this really quick. <laughs> yeah, this is a classic one. This is logic apps or flow, you know, um, before. Oh, flow. yeah. This is pretty similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They, they were working on it. It was a failed product, um, but they tried. This stuff, um, it's always a question in my head of, um, it's wow. a large design space. It's a big problem to solve. So it's curious to see which ones will survive and which ones are actually useful. So hearing from you that you find this one useful, that, that's a pretty big thing to me because it's easy to write an automation thing. It's hard to make it useful. Yeah, because you know, for a long time, I've been using a lot, a lot of backends for my apps. I use Azure Functions and Azure Functions also have timers or cron jobs basically. And uh, I use those still, right? Because that's like I... I am just running a bunch of logic that's doing some stuff and shoving stuff over here. Whereas usually my usually my flows and automations are tying into a lot of different pieces of data, like an Excel spreadsheet, right? Like I'm querying mm-hmm. Excel spreadsheets. Like I don't know how to do that from an Azure function. It's probably <laughs> possible, but yeah. I, I'm reading in that data and then I'm updating tables and rows in an Excel and then I'm sending an email through my personal, you know, work account, you know what I mean? And then I'm posting a Teams message. Like I actually could do all that from Azure Functions, but like I'm already authenticated. I have all this stuff and it just kind of does it. And that's the magical bit and piece of it. And they both have their place and they're both very powerful. Um, And you can combine them, like I said. So I've talked way too much about automation, but there's a lot of automation because, you know, a lot of people may think like CICD, but actually funnily enough for what you're talking about with actions github actions is you can kind of do anything you want you can you can yeah. have it generate a new website for you and, and and you could have it send you an email and a text alert and like all sorts of ins and outs right and i love that stuff yeah i i keep thinking all my dynamic websites should actually just be static websites like i should just have like we should go back to 1970s computing and just have our websites all update at midnight <laughs> and then people can hack in when the clocks change it'll be really cool oh yeah i'm in All right, everyone, (laughs) that is going to do it for this week's Merge Conflict. Again, every 10 episodes, we do these awesome lightning topics. You can submit your own questions and comments. We read all of them, we swear. A lot of nice comments about the um, episode I did with Maddie, so I definitely respond back to those. You go to mergeconflict.fm. You can leave comments on the episodes. Preferably, you can just send us a contact. There's a contact button. You can email us, or you can hop in our Discord. Anyone can jump in there. We also release exclusive episodes on our Patreon nearly every week. We'll get back to them next week after this one. Um, but yeah, there's there's a button on the Merge Conflict out of them. Just go over there. That's going to do for this week's Merge Conflict. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.